Good morning once again, church. If you would take your Bibles and open to Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 5 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Thank you guys for doing your best to be here this morning. I know the roads were a little slippery. Conditions weren't the best for many people to drive here. For those of you that were able to make it, we're glad that you're here safely. For those of you that were forced to tune in online, thank you for joining us as well. We look forward to you being back with us soon. Um, Pastor Steve is on military uh, assignment this weekend, so he's not with us. Once you found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. It is our custom to stand for the reading of God's word and to give the honor that it deserves. Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, God's word says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us by your word. Cause us to believe the things that you want us to believe And move us to do the things that you want us to do. May we be sober-minded this morning as we listen to your final word to the Jews in the book of Malachi. And I pray, God, that you would would just open our hearts to the truth of Christ. May we behold him in the word this morning. May we be transformed by your spirit, Lord, uh, who preaches the truth to us and interprets scripture for us and illuminates it and helps us to understand it. God, we give you glory for this. And for those that do not know Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would do a miracle of regeneration, that you would bring them to life, and that you would give them faith and repentance, that they might know Christ the Savior today and love him for all eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Obedience. God's Love for Obedience, subtitled, God's final word. God's final word. What a remarkable conclusion to the book of Malachi. But also the Old Testament. God is going to send a prophet to Israel. Seemingly the one who's been gone for 400 years. He's going to send this prophet to Israel prior to God's personal visit to earth. In this visit, though, there will be a turning of hearts to the fathers and of the children back to the fathers and vice versa. The fathers to their children. Because if this turning does not happen, God will have no other alternative than to strike the promised land with destruction for Israel's wickedness. And this harkens us back to the Mosaic Covenant where God promised blessings and cursings that we've mentioned many, many times through Malachi. Now, because of the amount of content that we have to cover today, I'm going to dispense with my my normal introduction, Um, but we're going to just jump right into the scripture and what it has to say, okay? Now, after God, and for those of you that uh, aren't used to this kind of preaching, you're going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant today, okay? So just hang tight and just gulp down as much as you can. All right. If you don't remember everything, you can always go back and listen. Now, after God says this, these final words to, the, to Israel through the prophet Malachi, 
After that period, we have a period of 400 years of silence from God. Then after that, that's when the New Testament breaks out with the birth of Jesus. And then 30 years later, we hear of a man named John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the world. How are these events tied to Malachi? Why such a dramatic ending to the book of Malachi? What does this have to do with us as a church? But more importantly, what does any of this have to do with Jesus Christ? Well, don't go anywhere because we're going to answer these questions in this morning's sermon. Let me give you some background, though, to this guy named Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of God. His name means, my God is Lord. And Elijah was a prophet. He was called by God to preach and speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. There's a northern and a southern kingdom because Israel had split into halves around 975 B.C., 975 B.C., all right? And with no introduction to this guy named Elijah, he bursts onto the scene no, out of nowhere a hundred years later. So around 875 B.C. is when Elijah's ministry starts. There's no background on him given whatsoever. No origin story. No prior history. No calling from God. He just shows up on the scene. And he's preaching against the uh, evils of King Ahab, who ruled for 22 years. Elijah speaks directly to King Ahab, and Elijah foretells of a coming drought from God, where there's no rain uh, on the the land of Israel. And this is going to come upon them because of Ahab's evil in worshiping the God of Baal. The drought came, and it lasted three and a half years. Three and a half years of no rain. What a dramatic entrance into the life of Israel as a prophet of God who helps us to understand Christ much better. There are some amazing accounts of Elijah and his ministry. Most notably is the battle of the gods at Mount Carmel. Sounds like a tasty place to go uh, enjoy, right? Or maybe that's caramel, right? Or is it caramel? Everybody pronounces it differently, right? Tomato, tomato, all right? Elijah calls for the, in this battle, he calls for the 450 prophets of Baal, who is the sun god, and he calls for the 400 prophets of Asherah, who is the moon goddess. These two false deities were believed to be the gods of fertility. And all of the people of Israel and all of these false prophets get together, and Elijah asks the people of Israel this question. He says, how long will you, Israel, go back and forth between God and Baal? The people were silent, and they did not respond to Elijah. And so he sets up this battle between the true God and the false God. Each side was to have a sacrifice, an altar with a sacrifice on it. And then they were each to call upon their God to consume the sacrifice from the fire with fire from heaven. And who, who's ever... God did this, that would be the God who was the true God. And so everyone said, let's do this. The prophets of Baal, they called upon their God from morning to noon, and their God never responded. Elijah taunts the prophets. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. He says, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep and you need to go wake him up. What a cool prophet. They continued, the false prophets, to cut themselves and to cry aloud, hoping their God would respond. Elijah then summons all the Israelites near him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. And he took 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he built an altar 
with these stones, which paints a picture of a unified Israel that is supposed to be devoted to the one true God. Then he dug a trench around the altar, and he set up wood on the altar along with the sacrifice. Then he he did a bold move. He decided to drench the altar, the wood and the sacrifice with water. And he drenched it once, and he drenched it twice, and he drenched it thrice. Three times he drenched this thing. It was soaked. The trench was filled. And then Elijah offered a prayer to God. And it will leave you breathless when you're reading the account. He said, let it be known today that you are God over Israel and that I am your servant who obeyed your word completely. At that very moment, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. But not just the offering, the wood, the stones, and all the dust around the altar and the water itself. And the people were united back to God. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah had all the false prophets seized and executed. Don't forget this story because it helps us to understand Malachi's prophecy which we'll get back to in a second. Another notable story in the life of Elijah is the way that he left this world, okay? He did not call an Uber. He, he just he took off in dramatic fashion. I promise you this. Listen to this. He was with his disciple and protege, Elisha. So don't confuse Elijah with Elisha. Elijah, the prophet, knew he was leaving this world, and he had three pit stops to make before he would leave And at each pit stop, he was going to visit the sons of prophets. And he had to go to Bethel, a place called Jericho. You may know that story, Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. And then the Jordan River. At each trip, Elijah tells Elisha, the younger, that he's got to stay behind. And Elijah's going to go on ahead. And Elijah says each time, I'm not leaving your side. I'm going with you, Elijah. At the third stop, when they get to the Jordan River, Elisha takes off his cloak whips it up and smacks the water and the water's part in two so that they can walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. Elisha then, I'm sorry, Elijah, the senior prophet, then asks Elijah, do you have any requests for me before I depart? Elisha says to Elijah, yes, I would like you to give me a double portion of your spirit This is Elisha's way of asking Elijah to to treat him as his firstborn, a double portion, all right? In the Old Testament, this was a way of saying the family rights belong to you, son. You're going to get a double portion of the inheritance. And so, in other words, Elisha is asking Elijah to pass on the office of a prophet to him so that he might take it over as soon as Elijah left. That's what he's asking by asking for a double portion of his spirit. He's asking to be a successor, much like, again, the firstborn son would be the successor to the father's estate. Elijah then says, okay, it will be as you ask if you see me leave. But if you don't see me leave, then forget it. You're not going to carry on this ministry. As they are talking and walking, chariots of fire appear with chariots of horses, uh, with horses of fire, so chariots of fire with horses of fire appear between the two of them. 
The Lord then takes up Elijah away into the sky, into heaven, in a circular storm cloud, a whirlwind, on this ancient war and fighting machine. Just get a picture of that. Knowing that his request has been granted, Elisha cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then Elisha saw Elijah no more. Now, regarding the Old Testament, I don't know if you knew this, but it's broken up into sections. Sections called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Sometimes it's called the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms. And just as, um, I should say, the entire Old Testament um, in the life of Israel in regards to Elijah became so important that Elijah began to be seen as the premier prophet. And just as Moses came to represent that section of the Old Testament called the law, Elijah came to be representative of that section of the Old Testament called the prophets. And so we might say the Old Testament We might say the Bible when referring to the Old and the New Testament. The Jews, they sometimes call the the Old Testament the law and the prophets. And so when we see the end of Malachi, those two men are mentioned. Moses and Elijah, representing the law and what? The prophets, representing the scripture of their day, which was only the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And We just read verses 4 and 5 in which Elijah is mentioned, but verse 3 mentions Moses. And God says through Malachi to Israel, Israel, remember my servant Moses. And then he says, behold, I am sending Elijah. So look back and remember and do the law of Moses and then look forward because Elijah is coming. And when these names are mentioned in such close proximity, God is using these names to call Israel. He's using these two men to call Israel back to faithful living under God's covenant, to God's word at that time. Okay, That's how important Elijah was to Israel. Now, let me cover some non-biblical Jewish traditions. They're not mentioned in scripture. They're just in the life of the Jews. Let me explain a couple non-biblical Jewish traditions where you can see that Elijah still holds a huge place in the lives and hearts of the Jewish people today. You remember that Elijah left in spectacular fashion, just as I mentioned. The Jews now uh, expect him to return based on Malachi's prophecy, which we read in verses 5 and 6. But around the 11th century AD, a tradition began in which the Jews would leave their doors open to their homes they would leave them open during the Passover feast as an act of faith to what God had said in Malachi. They believed Elijah would come, and they hoped that they might visit their own individual home. And if Elijah showed up like Malachi prophesied, they wanted to see him and go out and greet him and welcome him in. And if Elijah showed up, it meant that Messiah's return was near, as Malachi foretells that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Elsewhere in chapter 3, we see that God's going to send a messenger to prepare the way for a messenger of the covenant. And we saw that it was Elijah preparing the way for God. And we see that it was, we'll get to in a second, John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. So, in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, we see that. The pre-messenger making the way for the messenger of the covenant. 
Eventually, though, this tradition of leaving the door open for Elijah to come, it morphed into the idea that if, if uh, Elijah shows up to Passover, then he's going to come inside, so let's have a cup of wine ready for him. But the point of Scripture, not the tradition, the point of Scripture was that if this Elijah shows up, the one of Malachi, then Messiah is right on the heels of Elijah. And this Elijah would call for people to get ready for the king to come, for God to come. He's a sign or an indicator of Messiah and that he is close at hand. Are you with me so far? All right. Not only is Elijah important to the Jewish people at Passover, he's also important at the Jewish circumcision ceremonies, which is called the Brit Milah or the Bris. At the ceremony, there is an empty chair. Again, Scripture doesn't command this, but this is how tradition has evolved in uh, their life. But at the ceremony, there's an empty chair. It's well-decorated, and it is the chair for Elijah. The baby boy to be circumcised is placed on Elijah's chair, and the ritual circumciser chants, This is the seat of Elijah. And he asked during that time for Elijah to oversee the circumcision so that no one circumnavigates the process and cuts corners because in the Old Testament scriptures, you could not take Passover unless you went through the circumcision process. So Elijah's there to oversee the process. Thus, listen, they believe that he acts as a witness to the circumcision, all right, to God's covenant sign, which he commanded the Jews in the Old Testament. And then according to Jewish beliefs, again, not scripture, at Passover, all right, after the cup of wine is poured for Elijah, they read some scriptures and they believe that they are graced at that point by the presence of Elijah who testifies at Passover that all the males there have been circumcised since he was present according to their tradition, present at the circumcision. He can now testify by his presence there that all have been circumcised because only Jews, uh, only those who have been circumcised are allowed to participate in the Passover according to the book of Exodus, okay? So Elijah, in the Jews' mind, is still held in high esteem in the Jewish community. This high esteem mixed with scripture, human tradition mixed with scripture is what we see. So with this brief Biblical introduction and Jewish sketch of Elijah, his dramatic prophet, prophetic life, his dramatic departure, um, and, and all that we see, we're going to get into this final couple verses of the Old Testament. This ends, verses 5 and 6, it ends the sixth problem mentioned in Malachi. The sixth problem. This, these verses also end Malachi, Period not just the sixth problem because there are six problems being addressed. It ends that. It ends the book of Malachi. These final verses end the writings of the prophets as well, that section of the prophets. And these final verses end the Old Testament. So this is a very important passage. Then again, what we have after Malachi's final message is 400 years of silence from God. And then John the Baptist and Jesus explode on the scene in the New Testament. But before Malachi ends, he has this final command to look back to Moses and then a warning to look forward to the prophet Elijah. In order for these final verses to make sense, you have to understand the whole writing, all right? Because these last few verses call for a final application of everything related to what God has been saying in the book of Malachi to Israel. And he's calling them to once and for all change their ways and to turn back to God. 
And this has been their problem time and time again. So in Malachi, God has been addressing six sinful ways they have been living and thinking. And I'm going to summarize those six ways in just one sentence apiece, okay? Problem one, they don't believe God loves them. Problem two, they hate God's name and they show it by their polluted sacrifices. Three, the men break covenant with God and with the women that they are married to by their unbiblical divorces and their marriages to pagan women. Problem four, they believe that God is the one who is unjust and that he tolerates wickedness like sorcery, adultery, perjury, and oppression, social injustices. They, problem number five, they rob God of tithes and offerings that are due to the Levitical priests for their temple service as they offer up worship to God and sacrifices. And then number six, make sure you understand this because it ties into our passage today. They believe it is pointless to obey God, that it is pointless to remain in covenant faithfulness with him. God reminds them in this final problem, this sin issue, I'm going to recap this one a little bit more. He reminds them that he will make a distinction between the righteous and unrighteous. Oh, God, you you don't pay attention to those who do wicked things. I do pay attention. Lord, we're not rewarded for serving you. There is a reward coming. In fact, I will make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, between those who are in covenant faithfulness to God and those who who are in rebellion against him. And so the final three verses, we're only looking at two, the final two, but the final three verses of Malachi summon Israel to look back in time to remember the law of Moses, but not just in a mental sense, but in a sense of obedience. Remember and do. Recall that and do the law of Moses. So God is calling Israel to stop thinking that it is pointless to obey him, and he's summoning them back to obedience. That was our last sermon. Then in the final two verses, God calls them now to not look back, but look forward to the preacher, prophet Elijah, and anticipate a time of salvation and a time of judgment. This coming distinction, salvation and judgment, is between the righteous and the wicked. This coming celebration is for God's people who are saved and will dance like calves released from stalls versus those who will be consumed by the fire of God and be ashes under our feet. God does not tolerate rebellion and will punish the wicked. And so he's correcting the Israelite thinking of their day. And he promises to bless those who are in covenant with him. And so God is going to make a personal visit to establish and validate his righteous character forever. Once again, in bringing up the names of Moses and Elijah, God is calling them back to be faithful to all of Scripture because Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets. They are to look back, they are to look forward. Let's now look at verses 5 through 6. We see, first of all, the coming of Elijah. The coming of Elijah. As I just said, verse 4 calls us to remember, to look back, remember the law of Moses, which meant to recall it and obey it. You have to understand that God is a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. He is a saving God. And he expects covenant faithfulness out of those whom he has saved from Egypt. And so it's only right for God, after having saved the Jews from the Egyptians, to require obedience to him. He loved them and saved them. 
And so the salvation of God is appreciated in the serving of God, okay? The salvation of God is appreciated in the serving of God. And so now God calls him to look forward to the coming Elijah. If you were to travel further back into the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied of something. He said that the Lord God was going to raise up a prophet like him, like Moses, who would speak the word of God. And it was to this prophet that Israel was to listen. There's a coming prophet who you got to listen to, like Moses, but greater in some way. And while Elijah or some other prophet could be referred to here, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that passage. The book of Hebrews, the very first verses, tell us that while God spoke in many ways in the past by prophets and dreams and visions and things like that, he spoke many ways and in many times through many different people, all right? It says, Hebrews says, he now has spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed heir of all things. And so the one who speaks for God is Jesus. He is the prophet of all prophets. He is God of all gods. He is Lord of all lords and king of all kings. And in looking back to Moses, the lawgiver, they expected one that was greater than Moses to come from Deuteronomy 18. And so they too, they were to recall this ministry of Elijah and look forward to Elijah coming again. Verse 5 starts out with this word, behold. Behold. It's not a word that we use often. I mean, when's the last time you just went around saying, behold? Anybody said it recently if they weren't reading scripture? Maybe somebody, maybe one of you ladies cooked for your, your husband. You're like, behold, dinner. All right? And then the husband's like, behold, a foot massage. Okay? Um, maybe that's far from anything you've ever said. But who knows? If that's you, come and talk to me. We got things to discuss. All right? Behold, this is the fourth time this word has been used in Malachi. The fourth time. Each case it's used, it is used in close proximity to God's displeasure and coming judgment. So this is not a fun word to read in Malachi. It's not like, look, look at those Christmas lights, right? Look, there's a skunk. What's that doing up here? Look, snow. Look, behold, in the Bible is warning us that something is wrong. It's a word meant to awaken and sober up the listener. Look at what God is about to do. In this case, behold, is meant to let people know that God is sending them a prophet. And prophets were there not to coddle, but to rebuke and to call people to repent of their sin, lest God would come and judge a people with destruction or some sort of punishment. That people group could be Israel or even a foreign dynasty like we see in the account of Jonah with Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. In Malachi, God has sent them Malachi, whose name means messenger. Malachi is a prophet. He sent them Malachi already. And now God is going to send the premier prophet Elijah, all right, before God himself comes to earth, to the temple. He's already a revered prophet because he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, a storm cloud, in a chariot of fire, pulled, pulled by horses of fire, not tasting death. That God would send Elijah to them should let them know that not all is well on their end. Are you seeing that? Understanding what prophets do in the ministry of Elijah? 
God had already called them to observe the law of Moses, which meant they weren't doing it. And now Elijah's coming, the one who departed in holy, warlike fashion. He's coming. And Elijah is a servant who just prepares the way for the king to come. And the king is not happy right now. So if you thought it was bad news that Elijah was coming, it's really bad news that God is coming because something is wrong. Yet even in the midst of this prophetic uh, utterance of destruction coming, there are still tastes of grace in there. With the threat of judgment to come, a promise of salvation is also embedded here. 400 years have passed since this final word from God in the Old Testament, if, if you're in the Jewish calendar. 400 years pass after this final word. Then when the New Testament starts, we see the prominent, we see a couple prominent people on the scene right away. John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, based on uh, Malachi, the Jews were expecting the literal Elijah to, prepare, to come and to prepare the way for God to visit Israel. God calling himself the messenger of the covenant or the angel of the covenant. What we see from the New Testament is that Jesus says that John the Baptist was this Elijah who was to come, Matthew eleven fourteen, And that the people did not recognize that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. Rather, he was like Elijah, Scripture tells us, okay? So he wasn't Elijah reincarnated because Scripture doesn't teach that. He was like Elijah. He was going to have a ministry in the spirit and in the power of Elijah based on Luke 1, 17. In Mark 9, Jesus says that Elijah, who was to come, did come, and that he was severely mistreated, just as the Messiah would be severely mistreated. But according to Jesus, he says, when Elijah comes, when, then the Son of Man comes. This is what Jesus says. When Elijah comes, the Son of Man comes. And that explains what Malachi says, that God will send a messenger followed by the messenger of the covenant. God will send a prophet, and then he will come on the heels of this prophet. Elijah comes before the day of the Lord. Elijah followed by the Son of Man. John the Baptist followed by Jesus. I hope you see the clear connection. But here we see that God is going to send Elijah, the prophet, to Israel before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Prophet means spokesperson or mouthpiece. It's not too complicated. And they speak for God. It's clear that Elijah was coming to speak in order to get people ready for the great and awesome day of the Lord, to prepare them for a personal visit from God. The word great in scripture, when it says great and awesome day, great means intense and large. And awesome means dreadful and terrifying. Dreadful and terrifying, intense. If you recall in other sermons through Malachi, we discuss how this day of the Lord, this visitation from God, it consisted in two parts. Just like when we have a day, there's two parts, right? There's morning and then what? Nighttime, right? These two parts, the coming of God had two parts in a couple ways. Number one, there was going to be salvation, but there's also going to be judgment. Jesus would accomplish salvation and judgment in both his first and second coming, all right? We know especially he accomplished salvation in his first coming. In his second coming, we're especially aware that there's a final end time judgment coming. A daytime and a nighttime. A first half and a second half. Part of day, this day, and the other part. All right? But to be certain, 
as I just said, there was salvation and judgment in both Jesus's and uh, first coming and in his second coming. And I'll explain that in a bit. Okay? In looking in the details of the day of the Lord in previous sermons, uh, we saw that the uh, coming of the Lord has two parts. And this Elijah, this John the Baptist, was meant to prepare Israel for this day, this first part of the visit. So let's talk about the first half, the first visit of Elijah and the Lord. And then we'll look at the second half of the day. All right? First half. In the New Testament, we see John the Baptist calling people to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven was upon them. The rule and reign of God was there. And so he's calling people and calling them to repentance. He's calling them to stop sinning against God and to return to covenant living under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the law of Moses. And just like, remember that story of Elijah I told at the beginning, the battle of the gods at Mount Carmel? Just like Elijah summoned Israel to return to the Lord at Mount Carmel, John is doing the same thing. He's calling them to recognize who God is and to turn their hearts and their lives over to him. John is therefore making straight the paths of the Lord to arrive. He's filling in the potholes. He's leveling the bumps of the road so that God can arrive on a smooth path as a king should come. In other words, he's calling for the crooked to be made straight, for people to turn from sin and to turn their lives over to God who reigns and who is invading with his reign. John is the Elijah of God's visitation. And John introduced who to the world? Jesus. He introduced the messenger of the covenant. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. God said he was coming. He did come. Remember that Malachi prophesied that this day of the Lord, it would lead to purification and salvation. But according to Malachi, it would also lead to condemnation and judgment, a distinction a purifying, and a judging. And we saw that the visitation of God would come in two parts. Again, a first and a second coming as part of one final day. In the first coming, Christ would die and he would rise again to save sinners. And John was preparing Israel for God's visitation for this first part of the great and awesome day. And in the first visit, Jesus accomplished salvation for us. In his first visit, though, he also pronounced judgment. It's not the final judgment, but it is judgment nevertheless. Just as he came to save us, yet there is final salvation coming, right? We are still expecting salvation to come, although we are saved now. There was a judgment then, and there is final judgment coming, okay? Not all Israel believed back then. Even though a great number believed, even though a great many number of the priests believed, a lot more rejected Messiah, just as Israel had forsaken God in Malachi. We see Israel continuing to do that even during the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the Lord indicated that judgment would come upon them. Jesus said that. He said, not one stone upon this temple will be left overturned. They're all going to be torn down. And that happened in 70 AD. Judgment came. Salvation came. Judgment came. And Jesus predicted that. And if you understand the Old Testament covenant, the destruction of the temple and the Jews being dispersed from their land, that's an indicator that God was sorely displeased with the Jews of the day. Just like God repeatedly kicked them out of their land and destroyed the temple in the Old Testament, it happened again. Prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, right, Jesus' final day on earth, 
Jesus ascended into heaven, right? What did he ascend on? Anybody remember? Clouds, yeah. It wasn't a trick question, okay? Some of you are like, I know the answer, but I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I need to re- read up my Bible. <laughs> you ever have that happen to you? You're like, the answer is so obvious, but I'm afraid to be wrong publicly and be humiliated with easy questions. Um, that's me. So Jesus ascends to heaven on clouds, accompanied uh, with a promise from two men, presumably angels, that he would return in like manner. In his departure, in his exodus, he told his disciples to make faithful followers of him. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, which harkens back to the Old Testament covenant. Remember the law of Moses. Remember and do everything I've told you. But now that the Old Testament is shut down, the New Testament is here, and we have a new law in which we are to follow, which is the teachings of Christ and his apostles, everything that they've told us to do. And so now we look at the Old Testament and the way that they did, and that's why we teach this way. Teach people to be faithful to me as Israel was to be faithful to God in the Old Covenant. And like Elijah in 2 Kings, how was Elijah taken up? In a whirlwind, in clouds, okay? In holy warlike fashion. Jesus is now taken up into heaven in dramatic fashion, alive with the promise to come again in like fashion. And church, I want you to know What I want you to know is that the day of the Lord is half fulfilled. Salvation and judgment have happened, but salvation and judgment are yet to happen in finality. Jesus came once as Malachi foretold. He's coming again to complete the second half of this day, and we call this the second coming of Christ. This is the culmination of the day of the Lord. Daytime has already passed. Nighttime, or the second half, is coming. And guess what? There is a second Elijah that prepares the way for Jesus to come the second time. Let us now talk about this second half of the day, this final salvation and judgment, the last Elijah and the final coming of Christ. In Revelation 11, we get the imagery of two witnesses of God. And they are called to be prophets for him. These two witnesses prepare the way for Christ to come in finality taking us back to echoes of Malachi 4. Do you hear how the Old Testament and the New Testament are ending in similar fashion? Okay. Christ is coming. God is coming. But there are messengers in each situation who prepare the way for Christ to come. And the miracles, the miracles that these two prophets do mirror the miracles of Moses and Elijah. Go back and read Revelation 11. Thus calling us to remember these Old Testament figures that are mentioned at the end of Malachi that summarize the Old Testament, Law and Prophets. These two witnesses of Revelation are presented in light of Christ's second coming. And when you take the time to study these two shadowy figures, we see that these two witnesses are really one entity presented as two people, symbolically Two people, in reality, one entity. This entity is God's faithful church. Listen to that. This entity is God's faithful church. The church is the modern-day prophet like Elijah, like Moses, who speaks God's total word, the law and the prophets, and the law of Christ. We speak God's total word. We speak the Bible 
We speak of judgment to come, and we warn of judgment to come. But that those who are reconciled to God will be saved through the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ. This was all pictured in Revelation 11. The church, we are the unique people that are worldwide now. Not just sent to Israel, but sent to the entire world. Doing what Israel was supposed to do as a people and in their many offices. What was Israel supposed to do? And through all their priestly offices and kingly offices and prophetic offices, they were to point the way to God so that the world would know. And they failed. And the Lord came to be Jesus, the perfect Israel, living out completely, perfectly what Israel failed to do, just like Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do, just like Jesus came to do what you and I failed to do, which is to live before God perfectly in this world. So Jesus comes as the perfect Israel, fulfills everything in the old covenant perfectly, seals the old covenant shut. It is, Father, what you expected from the old covenant, Jesus did. And all its pictures and shadows and types and and prophecies fulfilled in Christ. He is the sacrifice. He is the king. He is the priest. He is the prophet. He's everything. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. He is the second Adam. And the list goes on and on. He is everything the Old Testament pointed to and fulfilled and fulfilled it all in obedience and in type and in shadow and in prophecy. It's sealed up and now we got the new covenant and we have a slightly different way to live. But as prophets, as Modern day Elijah, we help usher in the kingdom of Christ, and we say that Christ is coming again. And so while, don't, don't you think it seemed foolish to some people to think that Elijah would come again after he was gone for 400 years? Don't you get the same feeling that that's how the world feels about us when we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Cannot we point them historically back to Malachi and say, look, he prophesied it the first time, and, and God came in Jesus, and therefore we can believe that he's trustworthy and will do it again. If you're thinking that Jesus isn't coming back, then you don't understand the nature and the promise-keeping covenant faithfulness of God. You don't understand that he does not lie. You can go back and verify history to see that God does what he said he's he's going to do. He did it, and he will do it again. Okay, It's very important that you get that. We are the Moses, another Elijah, who speak for God and lead people to turn to Christ before he comes again. The world is called then to listen to God's word to listen to God's word that we proclaim, and thus we act in the spirit and the power of Elijah as well. In fact, when we take communion, which we're going to do here in a little bit, it intimates that we are Elijah-like in that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until when? Until he comes again. I don't know if you understand this, but the way the New Testament writers write, they are just alluding back to Old Testament stuff over and over again to help us understand the nature of it. All right? We proclaim, we prophesy, we are prophets that prepare the way of the Lord. And prior to the Lord's return, the church is going to step it up. They're going to step it up just as Elijah was persecuted, just as John the Baptist was persecuted. So we too will be hated when we step it up. And we will be hated on by the Antichrist. I need to ask you a couple questions. Do you recognize your identity? Do you know who you are? Do you understand the gravity of the assignment that God has given you? Do you take to heart your call to preach and to prophesy God's word to make ready this world for the return of Christ? Prior to the return of Christ and the judgment of the world, the church is shown to be acting in the power of God based on Revelation 11, calling sinners to turn their hearts to God. Lest God come and strike, not Israel, with destruction, but the entire world with destruction. 
the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, along with all the other judgments upon Israel in the Old Testament, point us to this final day. They're but rolling hills leading to the final judgment to come. Just as God's many salvations of Israel are rolling hills meant to show us the final salvation that is coming. Brothers and sisters, like the ministry of John the Baptist, some will believe and some people will not believe us. Some will be saved and some will not. Salvation comes to those who believe the message God has given us to speak. As modern day prophets, we are called to speak because damnation comes to those who reject God's messengers and who reject God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is important that we see how the ending of Malachi was fulfilled in John the Baptist and Christ's first coming, but it is still yet to be fulfilled in our role and in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the second part of the day. There are multiple layers to this fulfillment. You need to understand that much prophecy in the Bible has multiple fulfillments leading to once and for all final fulfillments that are yet to come. So in part, Malachi 4, 5 through 6 is fulfilled in John the Baptist and Jesus' first coming. In finality, it is fulfilled in our final witness and Christ's second and final coming. There is an Elijah figure type of person presented in both Jesus' first and second coming, in John the Baptist and in the church. Once again, do you understand who you are? And do you understand your role? The life and ministry of Elijah was meant to connect us to Christ in that Elijah spoke for God. And he led people in that battle of battles against the God of all gods. He led people to be reunited to God and to turn their hearts back. And that's what John the Baptist did. And that's what we are called to do. How long, O world, will you you go back and forth between God and all your other gods? How long, O nations, will you do this? Will you plot in vain against our God? Turn to him and repent. And you must know that Jesus is the prophet of all prophets. He is the ultimate Elijah. Do you understand that his departure, Elijah's departure, was there to foreshadow Jesus' departure, right? His ascension into heaven. Just like Adam in some way foreshadows the second Adam, just like the ark represents the salvation that we have in Christ, just like Jesus is a greater leader than Moses over the church, just like Jesus is greater than all angels, and just like Jesus is the king of all kings, and he's the great high priest, Jesus is also the greater Elijah, the prophet far above Elijah. Now, what's remarkable, let me give you this bonus nugget. What's remarkable is that when Jesus was on earth, he went up on a mountaintop, and he met with Moses and Elijah. Another mentioning of those two names together. Moses and Elijah had been gone a long time. Moses, about, uh, Elijah about 430 years and Moses several thousand years. Okay? So they're meeting with him on a mountaintop in this astonishing miracle event. And you know what they're talking about? Moses and Elijah met with Jesus to talk about Jesus' departure. His departure. Both Moses and Elijah had their own unique exoduses. And if you don't know the word departure in the New Testament when they're talking about Jesus' departure, when you go to the Greek language, that word is exodus. Do you see, do you see what, the, what scripture authors are trying to help us connect to? Moses, who had an exodus, is talking to Jesus about his exodus. Elijah, who had a really freaky exodus, is talking to Jesus about his exodus. 
What are they trying to do? The authors are trying to help us to see that Jesus is about to do something that their lives foreshadowed. He's about to bring about the reality, okay? They've each had an exodus. Moses, out of Egypt, leading God's people into salvation. Elijah, departing from this world. If you remember the final plague of death over Egypt, there were 10 plagues brought. The final one was the plague of death. The Israelites were spared from this death if they participated in the sacrifice called Passover, in which they slaughtered a lamb, they painted the doorposts with blood, and when the Lord would come to visit that night, if the door was painted with blood, they were spared uh, from seeing their firstborn die in their family. And when God came through, all the, firstborn house, uh, all the firstborn kids in the households of Egypt and all the firstborn animals died, and there was much groaning in that night. And that's what God used to break the back of Pharaoh so that God's people would be led by Moses out into freedom, out into the wilderness to worship God. That exodus was about to happen way back then, and it did happen. And so Elijah's exodus, we already know how he took off in chariots of fire, pulled by horses of fire, and a storm cloud that just took him on up into heaven. All right? The New Testament authors want us thinking about this these departures, these exoduses in relation to what Jesus is about to do because Jesus is about to have two exoduses on the heels of each other. And they actually happen in the order that Moses and Elijah's exoduses happen. Through his death and resurrection, through his death and resurrection, Jesus would be the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb whose blood, if applied to our lives, redeems us from the judgment of God, from the tyranny of Satan, from judgment to come. Jesus would lead people into freedom forevermore. And Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah, and he said that he was the fulfillment of the one who would proclaim freedom to the enslaved and set the oppressed free. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Jesus led a host of captives free when he rose from the dead and ascended on high, far above the heavens. Jesus led an exodus at his death and resurrection and ascension. He led people free. That's an exodus foreshadowed in Moses' exodus. But also, after Jesus' resurrection, he was on earth for 40 days and 40 nights, walking and talking and eating and feeding people God's word and telling them about himself. He ascended bodily into heaven, alive, taking us back to the exodus of Elijah and his departure. If you think that it's a coincidence that Jesus' life seems to vividly portray the Old Testament in so many different ways, it's because the Old Testament was meant to point to Jesus, to foretell, to foreshadow, to typify his life and everything that he would do in his saving work. When you, it's not a coincidence that Jesus seems to repeat what we see happening in the life of Adam and Noah and Abraham and and. and and everybody else after that, in these stories that we see in Israel. You understand that there is so much more that happened in the life of Israel. So why did God choose those special stories, those particular stories and people and events? It's because God wanted those things to foreshadow what Christ would come and do. You understand that, right? I, ho- I hope you do. If ever you doubted that the Old Testament was about Jesus Christ, I pray that today puts that to rest and puts that to bed. Christ is why God picked out those situations. Christ is why God called those men. Christ is why God had those kings. Christ is why God had those battles in the Old Testament. Christ is why God had those judgments. Over and over again, it is all about Christ. God wants us to know Christ. And Moses, he led Israel to freedom by God's power. 
So Jesus leads people to freedom by his own power. As Elijah departed in holy chariots of fire and horses of fire in a storm cloud, so too Jesus left on a cloud with a promise to return in like manner. And you have to understand that Jesus wasn't departing on fluffy cotton balls. Sometimes we just picture like really cool fluffy clouds, right? Do you understand that that imagery is helping us to see something drastically different than what you might traditionally be led to believe? In the book of Revelation, how is Jesus going to come, the Bible says, in like manner, okay? The, The book of Revelation shows his return and what it looks like to come back in similar fashion. Those clouds, again, weren't just heavenly cushions. Those clouds that Jesus left on, they're indicators of God's glory, and they're indicators of the final judgment to come, much like Elijah's departure. The book of Revelation starts with the statement that Jesus who freed us, Jesus who freed us, who led in Exodus, is coming in the clouds. There's that like manner, which takes us back to Elijah's Exodus and departure and Jesus's Exodus and departure. Revelation reminds us that Jesus is coming again on a horse with eyes of fire, his face shining like the sun, a sword coming out of his mouth. In other words, that's, that's all symbolism, meant to say something real. He's coming again in warlike fashion to bring judgment upon the world, upon the wicked nations, upon people who reject his rule, to bring destruction to Satan, the beast, and the false prophet of Revelation, our nemesis. Revelation 19 tells us this. And if you ever doubt it again that all the scripture is about Jesus, may that be put to rest today. As Elijah left in a blaze of glory, in a holy, warlike fashion, and as Jesus left on clouds, all right, as Elijah was taken up in clouds, pointing us to the fact that God is holy and will judge, and he is all righteous, he's all-seeing, he judges by his word, He is bringing destruction. So too Jesus left and is returning in righteous judgment to save and to condemn, to bring final peace, but also to bring final war. And so in Malachi 4.5, we see that the real human prophet Elijah was meant to foreshadow the work of John the Baptist in the church in turning the hearts back of people to Christ, to God, before his first and second coming. We also see that the prophet Elijah was taken up in battle-like manner, and he's foretold to come again. So Malachi's prophecy, while it has more to do with the messengers that are coming before Jesus' comings, Scripture may have more in mind in that Elijah prefigures Jesus' spectacular ascension and surprising return. Again, Scripture has and uses itself in many, many ways to say many, many things in many different layers. The second thing we see is the calling of Elijah. We see the coming of Elijah and the calling of Elijah. Verse 6 It says, he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi has exhorted the Israelites to repent. Return to me, says the Lord of angel armies. Again, even the name that is used here in Malachi, Lord of hosts, Lord of angel armies, the word armies is in there, representing Jesus as a divine warrior. God is a divine warrior. And Malachi uses that phrase 24 times in his little letter in his little prophecy. If you don't recognize that a battle of battles is coming and that there's a clear victor, then you're missing one of the huge points of Malachi. Malachi is a prophet bent on calling Israel to repent and to live in covenant with God based on uh, on the account of their sin the Lord is coming to judge. And he will save some though. 
Malachi tells them that there's an Elijah that is coming to do the same. And the Lord is coming with vengeance and fury. He will utterly destroy when you go back and read the previous chapter. His destruction is said to be like fire that consumes trees, even the roots. That's how thorough it will be. Those who remain and are spared and saved will walk around on the ashes of the destroyed. This is a dramatic way of saying something symbolically is going to happen literally. That people will perish in hell forever if they don't come to Christ for grace, mercy, and salvation and trust Jesus as their Savior. Church, if you're calling fathers to turn back to their children, children back to turn uh, their hearts back to their fathers, um, if you're doing that, then you are actually calling people to repent. That's what that phrase means. That's what Elijah's do. The phrase, turning those hearts back and forth to each other, the word turn means to turn desires, turn hearts, to turn the will, not just actions, but also feelings, the total person. Turn is the old word, Old Testament word for repentance. And so it's not just a reconciliation of older and young, younger generations to each other. It is that, but it's more than just parents loving their kids and vice versa. It's part of that. But it's trying to say that they will love each other properly under the way that God created them to love. Parents loving children, children honoring parents. The big idea is that people will live faithfully to one another because they are now faithful to God. Things will be right in society as people submit to the rule and the reign of God. And if you recall in Malachi, there were men that were leaving their wives and divorcing them and going and marrying pagan women who worshiped false gods, right? And in leaving their wives, guess who else they left? They left their kids. Do you think those kids loved their dad for doing that to them? They were probably bitter. Just like if, if you have a dad that left you and deserted you and never took care of you, you might feel the same. And scripture says that he's going to turn, this Elijah's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He's going to fix the sin in their lives by calling them to repent. Deadbeat dads and kids will no longer hate each other. Relationships that were destroyed because of the forsaking of God and breaking covenant with him will be fixed. And so this is what the scripture is getting at. The Elijah turns hearts back to God, resulting in salvation, which results in restored relationships in human society. God required this, and God was going to get it. And God's going to use Malachi, and God is going to use us, the church, somehow, some way. Church, that's our task, to be Elijah-like representatives. That's our calling. Our living towards each other matters. The fruit of our lives is dramatically affected when we look to the past, and we see that Jesus Christ died for us. And when we look to the future and see that Jesus Christ is coming again. He led us away from the tyranny and in the rule of, under the rule of Satan, according to scripture. All right? We are to live in covenant with him under his rule and under his law. He's our God and our king, our Lord. And the way that we live in one, with one another as a church shows if we are properly responding to our king who has saved us and doing all the one another's of scripture to bear with each other's burdens, to pray for each other, to forgive each other, to greet each other. And it goes on and on and on the way that we are supposed to relate. We are to warn others that justice is coming, that judgment is coming, and that people must repent of their sin. And we are to give the hope of the good news of how Jesus saves them, that purification can be had in Christ Jesus. Hearts will be turned. Hearts will be turned before the Lord comes but there will be many that do not come to Jesus Christ. If you guys don't see, and you have to understand what, what Malachi is getting at and what scripture gets at, social evils that we see in this world, the wickedness that we see in this world that is taking place, it is a direct result of rebellion to God. 
All the problems we see in the world are direct results of mankind's rebellion to God. And if you don't see the evils in society as, as the result of direct rebellion to God, then you will not see repentance and faith in Jesus as the cure for societal ills. If you don't understand why society is messed up, you will come to it with the wrong solution, and you won't see Jesus as the answer. Instead, you'll run to a political party that, think, that thinks it has the answers to fixing society's problems. Societal problems are ultimately sin problems, not program problems, not even election problems. And this church, it is a bunch of sinners who have had their hearts turned to Jesus. We aren't perfect, but God is slowly making us like him. And we're supposed to grow in our love for one another because we have believed the message and been transformed by it, by God's grace. And that's what God promised Israel. Their land, the dirt that they walked on and lived in, it was, it was a generous gift from God. And God promised to bless, to bless that land with produce and livestock that fed off of that land. If Israel remained covenant, uh, faithful to him in covenant, and when they broke it diso- and their disobedience came in, destruction would come. God said he'd strike their land with all sorts of curses. No rain would come. They'd work hard and hardly produce anything. Locusts and worms would come and devour their crops, and he would send them into poverty and indicate to them through that that they were spiritually lost. That doesn't apply to us in the same way because we're not under the Old Testament law and the covenant curses and blessings. All right? It's not like we're going to get rich from obeying God. That's not what he's telling us. That was physical indicators of their spiritual condition under the Old Covenant law. The blessings and cursings were meant to teach us of greater realities. And the reality is this, that the new creation is coming where blessing upon blessing exists. And God will dwell in a new earth with a new heaven on it, and it will come down and the two will meet and never be separated. And those who live in this new cosmos are those who submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and come under his rule. Those who don't want to be in covenant with Christ under his rule will perish forever in hell. And that's what those covenant curses and blessings were meant to teach Israel. You disobey me, I will destroy your land and kick you out of it. You obey me and you come under my rule and and understand that I am your savior, then I will bless you and reward you. So don't expect your bank account to get fat just because you're coming to church and reading your Bible and going to small group and sharing the gospel. That's not what it's meant to teach. It is pointing to a greater blessing and a greater salvation, a greater way of life for all eternity, and it's also pointing to a greater judgment to come. Church, this sermon is called God's Love for Obedience. Remember that. In Malachi, Israel said it does no good to obey God. God's message to them was, you're wrong. I hate evil. I will punish it. I will bless you in obedience. And so God issues these final warnings in his love. He sends messengers in love to give that warning. Israel's obedience isn't what saved them. God already saved them out of Egypt. Their obedience was to be an outflow and a reciprocation of their love to God. So too, our obedience is out of love, all right, for what God has done us in saving us from hell and giving us eternal life in the new creation. But there are still many yet to come to Christ. We must call them to believe and to repent. We must call them to know that Christ is coming again. So let us be a church that prophesies and declares the word of God. Let us warn with urgency as we sang this morning. You must repent and believe. And let us plead in love for sinners to come to Christ. Because who can endure the day when Christ comes? Who can endure that day? Only those who are saved in Jesus. When you look at the life of Israel, you can see in part that John the Baptist turned some hearts back to God. 
Many repented and were baptized. Even the priests came to believe Jesus as the Savior. Many of them did. The Lord purged Israel and cleansed them in part. Then he judged others in part, as Malachi foretold. Destruction came to the temple, and the Jews were kicked out of their land. Again, this is all a fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, its curses and blessings. At this time, Scripture tells us that in view of God's judgment and the rejection of the Jews, right? He's rejected them temporarily, kicked them out of their land. He is making them jealous, Scripture says. He is bringing people from all nations to salvation. If they won't receive Christ as Savior, then I'm going to start bringing in the nations of the world, which Scripture always had in mind. So people from all over the world are coming to Jesus the Messiah. In this way, God is making the Jews jealous so that he will bring them back to himself in the new covenant since the old covenant is closed. In this way, God is doing what he said he would do. Do you see that your calling is to be Elijah-like to the Jews and to the world, like John the Baptist? We gotta call people to come to the Lord, lest judgment befall them. What's interesting is that during the 400-year period after Malachi, the period between Malachi's writing and then Jesus and John the Baptist coming on the scene, is that the Jews returned to the word of God, but not in the way that the Lord wanted. During this time, some separate, some separatists, some pious religious guys called Pharisees arose, and they wanted to keep the Jews separated from the Greek influence in their lives. In their efforts to do this, in their efforts to do this, they began to add to God's word, and they began to Uh, The people began to ask questions, like, why are you adding so much to what God has to say? And in response, the Pharisees taught that God gave his written word, the law and Moses, and then God also gave the oral word. But what what was God's call in Malachi? To go back to Moses and to go to Elijah, right? So they had their own man-made traditions and made up rules. And it, it ended up becoming a huge burden upon the Jewish people. And they committed a different error than the people of Malachi's day. The people of Malachi's day, they had forsaken the word of God. The people in Jesus' day, because of the influence of the Pharisees, they had taken on God's word plus a bunch of other things, and now they were adding commandments, thinking by the teaching of the Pharisees, if they obeyed all this, then God will save us. And all they did was go from one extreme to the other. The grace and mercy of God were no longer the means of salvation. Instead, they heaped tradition and extra laws upon God's word. And that led Israel to being further lost. And thus they rejected John. And thus they rejected Jesus for the most part. They thought they were already in compliance with Malachi. And Jesus condemned their sort of teaching as well and simply called people to repent and to believe that God alone saves through Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. All the things that the Old Testament laws and the prophets pointed to were all about Jesus. And so when God is calling them to look back and to look forward to Moses and Elijah, he's calling them to look to the word of whom Messiah was prophesied about and of whom that word pointed to. The Old Testament always pointed to Jesus and to his grace and mercy. Now, church, there was 40 years between the first and second, uh, the, the prophecy of Malachi and the first coming of Christ. It has been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus left. Do you know that no further words of God have been spoken? This is a longer period than between the Old and the New Testament. Like the time between Malachi and the gospel letters, a long period of silence has been going on for some time. God gave Israel 400 years to get ready for his visit. He's now given the entire world 2,000 years before his second visit. While we don't know the exact time of Christ's return, it is getting closer. 
If we were to use the timeline of Scripture, we know, and if you use Scripture the way um, sometimes it's intended to be used, I don't know this one is 100%, but it could be when you look at Scripture, you see that the world has been around for roughly 6,000 years. And in the days of creation, you have six days of creation, and then you have a Sabbath rest, seventh day where the rest came. And the world has been around for 6,000 years, and Jesus has called our eternal Sabbath rest that we are to do our best to enter into that rest. It could be, don't know, it could be as we approach the 7,000th year or in, going into the 7th millennium, it could be that Christ comes back very soon. I don't know. But the, wor- the world is, is waiting for us to go and tell them about Messiah. The Lord has called us to do that. He's coming. He could be coming in the next 15 years, 20 years. He could be coming in the next 1,000 years. I don't know. But I know he's our rest. And I know that rest is coming soon. I know the judgment is coming soon. So we have a job to do. And when Antichrist arises, we will know, we will know that the return is very near. When persecution comes across the church worldwide, we will know that Elijah is suffering just as John the Baptist suffered, just as Elijah was persecuted. And amen to that. So when you see things getting rough, just look heavenward because Jesus is about to come. And I pray that even now we begin to fulfill our calling to be a witness to the world. If you're not a Christian, I urge, I urge you and I plead with you to be ready for Christ's return. Turn from your sin. Turn to him as Lord. Believe that he died and rose again to reconcile you to God. Lest God strike you with an utter decree of destruction. Heed his gracious warning and be saved today. Thus ends our time in Malachi. Let's pray.